We're testing out a new format and a new way of doing things on this week's episode of the Indigo Report Podcast. Back again, episode number 223 of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. My name is Nick, and this week will unfortunately be another solo episode, but there is good news, as next week I'll be able to get another voice onto this show, and we won't have to do uh, too much more of this solo jamming, as we call them here. Uh, that said, this week is a little bit alone, but the fix that we found does work. So it took two, three different attempts to get it fixed, get it solved, but now we can get everyone's audio through the board, get it into the recording program. So that's all well and set. So people that have been hanging in there the last couple of weeks, really since I guess the last episode of May, uh, y'all know the kind of struggles and the kind of troubles that we've had uh, with recording and how much of an odyssey it's really been for nearly a month now. But hey, we got through it, we're running through it, and this week we get to unveil the new way of doing things around here. But we'll cut off the rambling, we'll go right into the news, and we'll get started with this new format. The only caveat is, uh, going forward with interviews and things like that, there will be an interview slotted in here as well, just so that, uh, you know, so that way you can hear the interview, obviously. But that's really the only major difference, is that you will have an interview put in somewhere in between these segments, wherever it really fits best naturally. But by and large, this is going to be, roughly speaking, the format going forward. So feedback on this episode is going to be greatly appreciated so that way it can be tweaked to be just right. So let's start with the news and let's get going. Uh, really only piece of major news this week is uh, Cleburne. They were sold again. This happened on Thursday. They have been sold for the third time now in team history since they were brought back in 2017. Of course, it was a really, really old uh, independent league team from the early 1900s, I believe 1909, uh, called the Cleburne Railroaders as well. And so we saw a sale take place, I believe it was back in 2020, 2021. So right in that pandemic range, that saw some more uh, celebrity ownership, I guess you could say, brought in John Ryan, the former NFL punter, being the most well-known of that group. Now, that majority stakeholder in uh, Claiborne Baseball LLC has sold their majority share, which was 51.5%, to a new ownership group called the Railroaders Baseball Partners. Uh, that is going to be led by Tom Vanderveen, who is already a minority, minority owner of the team since 2021, that last sale that we just mentioned a second ago. Uh, he's going to be the managing partner or managing member of this uh, new enterprise that will own 100% of the railroaders. Uh, the managing partner of this venture is going to be REV Entertainment. Uh, REV Entertainment also has a, a hand in running the Texas Rangers. They have a partnership with them as well. So, you know, there's kind of a natural fit here, being that Cleburne is, by and large, in that Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. I believe it's about 30 miles away from Fort Worth. So, Realistically, it is a familiar group for, I imagine, both the business community, the baseball business community, and perhaps even some of the fans and patrons of that area. So it does seem to lend some credence, and certainly the city council agree with it, because this is a city-owned ballpark that the uh, railroaders play in. So they needed approval from the city council 
to allow for a new ownership group to take over the lease. Because technically, while yes, some members of this RBLLC were part ownership before, you know, minority stake, they now have a majority stake. They are now going to be the ones paying the lease. They're going to have their name on the lease. So that requires city council approval to make that change. The league also approved this sale. All these approvals happened sometime earlier in the week. I believe it was Tuesday night that all took place. Uh, links to some of the articles about this in the show notes as well. So that is really the main point here. Uh, Cleburne changes hands again. I know they've had some struggles with attendance, which I think is on some level to be expected. When you're an independent league team in Texas, it does limit your ability to, you know, draw on a certain level because you're going to be battling the heat a lot. You're going to be battling a lot of other events as well. So it is a bit of a struggle there. So hopefully you have a new group in that can come in and boost that tens a little bit. And more than that, though, hopefully uh, they can have some really solid, stable ownership because on the field they've had success. Obviously they had uh, some problems with, uh, you know, having a manager for a long term. Uh, long-term uh, period of time. You know, Logan Watkins has been in that in there now for about a, over a year or so. Uh, he's obviously done well with the team, got into the postseason, had a very strong, you know, second half of the year last year, which got Cleburne into the uh, playoffs there. So certainly strong on that half. Uh, but on the field, it has not really been the issue. Off the field, I suppose, has been, or at the very least, it seems like the group that had bought in 21 didn't quite know what they were getting into or kind of said it's time to cut losses or whatever it may be. Either way, it's an interesting trend to see here as, you know, two weeks ago we saw Gary South Shore get sold. Uh, so perhaps this was something that was in the works for a minute and it's just kind of like hold off for a minute. Let's see where everything works out. Let's see how everything goes. Uh, maybe it was something like that. Regardless of what went down to uh, necessitate the sale, uh, that sale has been made, and that's really the only bit of news to really be had. Keeping things moving, we'll move on to our next segment here, which is contract purchases. We mentioned last week about wanting to do of uh, some more major transactions, things like that. And contract purchases certainly fall into that category. Obviously, we can't go over every transaction. Otherwise, we'd have a whole hour-long show of just listing off transaction pages of each of the core four partner leagues. So instead, just keeping the contract purchases, keeps things moving, and frankly, it is of note because, as you will tell from later conversations in the show as we get into more heavy baseball talk, uh, one team in particular, or yeah, arguably two teams, uh, certainly get hit hard here. And continuing the trend talking about Cleburne, Earlier uh, in the week on Saturday the 10th, Michael Marriott had his contract purchased, obviously in the former major leaguer. All four guys had the contracts purchased this week were former major leaguers. Uh, he gets his contract purchased by the Reds. He'll report to AAA Louisville. Uh, in his short time returning to Cleburne, he was 1-1 one one with a 3.60 ERA. In just under 27 innings pitched, he had 29 strikeouts, walked only five guys. So a very impressive uh, performance in admittedly a bit of a limited time in Cleburne this year, but you'd rather have him be limited and be going to a major league club than have a very impressive year and stay here the whole year, right? So can't knock that, although I got to imagine that's going to hurt Cleburne a little bit. All uh, right, now they're second place in their division. 
They're fighting a very, very hot Milwaukee team, a Milwaukee team we're going to talk about in just a little while. And so losing your stud arm is definitely going to hurt you. But hey, good for Michael Marriott. Uh, the next three are all from the Atlantic League. Two of them are from Long Island. Let's start with the first of them. And probably the biggest name getting signed this week on Monday the 12th. Daniel Murphy had his contract purchased uh, from Long Island. He's going to be going to the Los Angeles Angels AAA affiliate in Salt Lake. So he slashed 331, 410, 451 with two home runs, 19 RBIs, three stolen bases, 14 walks, and 37 games. He definitely did a lot to prove that despite not really being around baseball for the last three years, he still has something left in the tank. I'm going to be interested to see how he makes that transition to AAA. Obviously a guy that had National League uh, MVP votes not all that long ago. So he definitely has something there. He's had a very long, successful major league career. He proved that, you know, he could still come in and play very well. I uh, maintained that for what, about a fifth of the Atlantic League season, maybe closer to a quarter of the Atlantic League season. He really looked like he, you know, played the part of still having a shot at a major league career and being able to revitalize that. So I'll be interested to see if he makes that jump there. Perhaps it more or less depends on what the Angels uh, are looking like as time goes on, but I suppose if you want a safer bet, he's a fairly safer bet of a pickup to make. And this is something that I know when he first got signed, Mimo went back and forth on. Well, I believe it's more on that he may stay the whole year type of thing. I was more on the camp of, I don't know, I could see him getting picked up. And it looks like he's more on the getting picked up side of things. So uh, good for Murph. He gets to move on to the Angels. Uh, next signing comes from Wednesday, the 14th, Jack Reimheimer. It gets picked up from the Gastonia Honey Hunters. He will go to the Royals and report to their AA affiliate in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, he hit 313, 421, 513 with five home runs, 19 RBIs, 23 stolen bases, and 28 walks in 41 games. An extremely successful start to his season. And frankly, it's kind of surprising he took this long to get picked up. A guy that's been a Honey Hunter for a good minute now. Another former major leaguer, a guy that bounced around a little bit. Really for, I think it's safe to say, a large chunk of his career was kind of a quadruple A type player. And really kind of an old school Atlantic League type of guy, you know. The kind of guy that, as a major league club, you don't know if you want to keep him around. Because yeah, he can be a fine bench piece on the major league level. There's probably younger guys that could fit that role. But he's a solid player, and he deserves to have a chance to play somewhere. And before, where you weren't seeing as many guys go overseas to, say, Mexico or Korea or Japan or China, the Atlantic League kind of filled that niche, and uh, Reimheimer certainly reminded me of that kind of guy. He was having an extremely strong year, dare I say a player of the year type year, and uh, he got rewarded with that. I'm kind of surprised it's double-A and not triple-A, but hey, you know, the Royals had someone else in mind in the Atlantic League, they wanted to send a AAA, and that came out today, Friday the 16th, with Adeni Hechevarria going from the Ducks to the Kansas City Royals organization, their AAA affiliate in Omaha. He gets picked up and signed to there, hit 297, 382, 538, with seven home runs, 34 RBIs, two stolen bases, 21 walks in 38 games. Arguably more impressive, arguably, you know, doesn't get on base at the same rate, considerably lower rate, you could even argue, but the power is more there, more versatile player probably, and a guy that also was a major league journeyman, as a fair statement to make, 
found his way around here. I think definitely on a Royal scene that's not particularly good. You could see him possibly get to the major league level. Uh, maybe not when you start getting deeper into the year when the season really officially becomes a lost cause kind of thing where now it's time to start running prospects out there and letting them get a taste. But I certainly think he may have a chance here in the next, say, month or two to get a chance to come up to the major leagues to fill in for when you don't want to move a prospect around or when you start trading out guys from your roster when the sales start coming, you know, the fire sales of anyone worth a damn on teams. We all know how that goes on the major league level. He's the kind of fill-in player that works perfectly in that regard. You could just kind of throw him there, and he'll work uh, he'll work in that role where you could just tell him, hey, you're playing third base today, you're playing second base today, you're left field today, you're shortstop tomorrow. You know, it is what it is. So he kind of fits that role well, and uh, certainly the Ducks losing two guys at once certainly hurts. Ruben Tejada came in. They replaced Major League Talent by bringing uh, Robert Stockton as well here, but uh, certainly for a Ducks team that is three games about 500, losing those two guys hurts you on the field, even if it does keep up the proud organizational tradition of getting really talented guys and moving them back to the major league level or to major league organizations, certainly. So uh, that's all we have in contract purchase news. We'll move on to the next bit here. So we'll move in now to our series spotlight. Uh, this is a series that... I mentioned last week I really wanted to do because you have, always have at least one or two really solid series that are worth spotlighting. Sometimes it's like last week or this past week where you had a Fargo versus Kansas City matchup where we really saw that Kansas City was the legit team that they have been in the past few years and that they are back to where they're at. And hopefully we'll get to see uh, them continue their dominance. But this week, it was really a tough pick for me because there's really three matchups that I really liked. I like the Fargo series. I like the Florence series that was taking place in the middle of the week. I thought maybe this could be something. Then I thought, well, Chicago King County could be interesting too because those are two teams on separate trajectories that, quite frankly, are about even in the standings. And that, where they're at in their season, about a third of the way done, closing in on that halfway mark sooner than later. Now, obviously, they still have about 15, 20 games to get to that point, but still, it comes up on you very quickly, and it could be hard to recover from that. So I thought maybe this could be something, but then, you know, I was like, yeah, it's still too early for that. The matchup that we're picking this week uh, is also middle-of-the-week matchup. It's a Tuesday through Thursday series, uh, the 20th through the 22nd. It is the Tri-City Valley Cats traveling up to Quebec to take on the Capitals. This is a matchup that has a lot riding on it in the sense of we're about a third of the way through the Frontier League season. Times are, you know, starting to pick up a little bit here. These are two teams that are separated by a game and a half in the standings. And for each team, it matters significantly. Now, obviously, there's a weekend series for each of them. In the Valley Cats case, they have a weekend series at home against Florence. First game got rained out tonight on Friday, so they're play playing in a doubleheader tomorrow on Saturday. In the case of the Capitals, they're in Schaumburg for three. So that's a very difficult series for them. That's a top three team in the league they're playing. So realistically, I wouldn't be shocked to see some serious ground shake there. And that's why I was kind of hesitant to take this matchup here. But assuming that they stay at about a game and a half, two games separated here, 
These are teams that are surprisingly even, and both of them have had that early season struggle here. Both of them have tried to find, find some footing, and it just hasn't quite gotten there yet. It's the first matchup between these two in the season, only three series they play against each other. Uh, so they're going to open it up in Quebec. The Valley Cats are probably a slightly more favorite team, I'd say, because while Quebec has a bottom three offense, the Valley Cats have a top three offense. And their pitching are pretty much even. They're roughly in the same grouping. I wouldn't say one has a dominant advantage over the other. We'll look at the matchups in a second. But overall, they're fairly similar. The Valley Cats manage to get hits. They manage to get runs. It's just they don't always manage to stop the runs from going up, right? So it'll be very interesting to see. Because while the Valley Cats have done well against Western opponents, so 10-8 and eight against them, they've only played 500 ball against teams in the East. And that certainly held them back. So much so that they are a game and a half back on New York, who has Lake Erie this week at home for the weekend series. So that's certainly something that could very well help them uh, a lot, I would even say. So I very much watch for that because Tri-City is in a position here where a game and a half back in New York, which is, in other words, a game and a half back of playing in the playoffs right now. And obviously, again, we're in June, middle of June. There's a lot of time left to go here, you know, two and a half months, roughly, so, you know, we've still got some time here, but even still, we've seen this before with Tri-City where they fall behind big, and then it's that end of June, beginning of July that they start to come alive, make a run, and they normally fall just a bit short. So if you can get that run going even a week or two early, the thing that me and Will have said the past two years, where, hey, it's you start just a bit too late. If you get it going a little bit earlier this year, perhaps, just maybe, that will be enough to take you over the top, get you into that wild card spot. And once you get hot, that's all you really need. We saw realistically last year, Schaumburg was just a really hot team. The year before, Schaumburg was just a really hot team. They took advantage of that, and they ran all the way to the championship series. And that's really what it comes down to in these short series. You know, everyone likes to point out that, you know, the playoffs don't necessarily pick the best team. They pick the hottest team. And while I disagree with that on some level, there is merit to that. Really, the Valley Cats are that kind of a team here. They have yet to really do any sort of major roster reconstruction. So ideally, I'd imagine they want to avoid that. Uh, but overall, this is going to be interesting. The first time they meet on each other, a game and a half separating them, and a game and a half separating a postseason spot to the Valley Cat spot. Both teams are 6-4 and four in their last 10. Shifting out of more Quebec opinion here, they're a team that's really looking to get going. They've really kind of just been in neutral the whole season to this point. They're six and eight versus teams in the East. So they do have a winning record at home, eight and six, to a six and nine record that the Valley Cats hold on the road. So from that perspective, a home crowd advantage, maybe it makes a difference. Maybe it doesn't. Mill the week's hard to say, really. But certainly the travel day in between helps. And going from Troy to uh, Quebec City, I think, think it's like a six-hour trip, so it's not a short trip, but it's also not the longest one on the docket. We'll see how that all shakes out there, but this is a series where, like I said, there's more of an implication for further down the road, and I feel like if one team has a dominating win, not a 2-1, but a sweep, if either side gets a sweep, that could really change the trajectory of the season. In Quebec's case, so you get that sweep, that's a launching pad. They have some easier opponents coming up. They have some windy cities. They have some Empire States, they have things like that coming up. There's there's light at the end of the tunnel. They can get this sweep, 
and just tread water until you, the end of the month. They can play 500 balls, stay within a game and a half, two games of that last playoff spot. There's enough of a dead zone for about a month where they can go ahead, shoot the gap, and get in there and really start to do some damage and start to go towards that playoff spot. Now, obviously, there's other teams in this division that are extremely hot. One of those teams we're going to talk about very shortly. But for Quebec, it just feels like a sweep the other way could send them in that tailspin and kind of put them in more of a 2021-2019 kind of position where it's over before it starts. While in the case of Tri-City, as we were just mentioning, a sweep here puts you right in contention. Either it helps you keep pace with New York or it could put you ahead of New York and arguably even Sussex County who, while, yeah, they have an easier opponent in Three Rivers to start the week, they then go to Evansville, which is not the easiest camp in the world either. So that's something to watch out for in the case of the Miners. They could easily win two games this weekend, then lose two games, and be pretty much the space you started in on next Friday as you are this Friday. So they are far from in a safe spot. And if you're the Valley Cats, you could very well see yourself going from fourth to second with the right set of, uh, I guess the right set of outcomes if they just fall in your way. So that's something to watch out for. Uh, looking right now at just some of the pitching matchups that at least to the best of my abilities I could project out. I imagine we'll see Sano and Bibi will take uh, the hill in game one. That's at least how it looks, checking box scores and how things tend to shake out. Quebec's a bit tougher to predict because they've thrown Fuentes about three days in the last seven games. So that's really tough to say where he's going to slot in. I would originally have said he could be a game three guy, but that's now strict to be determined on the Quebec side. But game one, I feel fairly safe saying it's going to be Sano and Mibi, assuming Sano does not pitch on Saturday or on Sunday. Uh, for game two, Chambly versus Dwayne Marshall seems to be fairly safe. Uh, this is the matchup here, and checking them both, I could see Game 2 being the definitive one. If Sano takes Game 1 against BB, that's not that surprising. Sano's been one of their better pitchers to this point for the Capital. So a 1-1 record and a 3.55 ERA. I believe it's about five starts for him thus far. BB's only on his second start. He's a college free agent guy. He's 1-0 so far, but a 4.66 ERA, about five innings pitched for him. So, again... Not much to work off of in that case there, but a pretty solid Sano player with a uh, Capitals team that is coming back from the road. Maybe a little bit tougher for them. They have, honestly, actually a further way to go than Tri-City does to get to uh, a state kind of, but even still, I give the edge to the better pitcher in that regard, especially when you have two middling teams for pitching. Uh, that seems to be something that could be a difference maker there. In the case of Game 2, Stefan Chambly, he has just uh, not been great so far this year. 1-3 and three in his starts, and he is at a 6-21 ERA. Uh, very much a tailspin for a guy that was in the Atlantic League last year. And Dwayne Marshall, a guy that really was a very solid pitcher for the Sussex County Miners last year, has continued that in the uh, capital region of New York by going 4-1 and one with a 3-69 ERA. A couple of rocky starts as of recent, but still a very solid pitcher. Still a good big game performer, and the kind of guy where I'd expect to go get that win, which then comes down to game three. Rafi Vasquez seems to be the guy. I'm 
projecting right now for Tri-City. Again, this is assuming that I have this rotation correct, and I think it's right. But if it is Vasquez, he's 3-1 with a 4 ERA, so he is a reliable starter. I wouldn't say he's extremely strong. I wouldn't say he's extremely weak either. That being said, it does depend on who goes for the Capitals. Uh, Dellinger, a rookie, could be the guy. He's been one of their better pitchers. It could be kind of a by-committee thing. Again, it really comes down to who gets thrown out this weekend because their rotation has just been kind of a mess, so it's hard to predict. But overall, this is the series to highlight this week. This is a series to watch. This is a series to be mindful of. And I wouldn't be shocked to see the winner of this series have a significant advantage and be in a playoff spot come the time of the All-Star break. And this is a series that, frankly, could matter for tiebreakers down the line because keep in mind, they meet three times this year. Three series, that's it. So across nine games, you get this win early on. The other two series don't come till August. And by August, you could be torn down from player signings. You could be torn down from injuries. You could really be just, hell, your really strong arms could just be running out of gas at that point. So you don't really know what the future holds. If you can get this series win, dare I say a series sweep, that's the kind of thing that could really matter when we get into August and then that first weekend in September. So certainly something to watch out for our series of the week, Tri-City at the Quebec Capitals. So we'll transition now into that next segment, a segment that's somewhat familiar here, and that is the hot and not segment. So if you're somewhat familiar with the Instagram posts, you will have known that there was a time where we do the weekly roundup. And in the weekly roundup, we have a hot and not section. One team or two teams from each league will get posted up there as doing really good, not doing really good. We're going to bring this to the show because, frankly, I think it works really, really well. Uh, first team that is hot and one of the teams that was honestly kind of a glaring omission from the indie ball rankings and was a team that I looked at and I thought really hard about, and they probably were going to come in at 11 or 12 for me, because Cleburne was probably my 11 last week. New Jersey was my 12. And um, they were on a 7-game winning streak when we saw that. They are now on a 10-game winning streak. And more than that, they've scored 113 runs during this streak. They are at a plus 72 run differential during the streak. Just insane. Now, of course, that helps with a 20 to nothing shellacking of the Florence Yoles. And really, this streak started after a really bad loss. I believe it was a 14-2 loss, a 13-1 loss, just a genuine blowout in Florence. That team recovered, responded 20-0, and just been on a run since that point. They've managed to shoot all the way up. They're a game out of first place in the East. And as I was mentioning earlier about having weaker schedules that you can take advantage of, they have Windy City for today, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then they go back home to play Empire State for four games. That is a large gap there. Because you have to assume across those two last place teams, across all of them, you're going to tell me that you can't manage to go 5-2 and two or 6-1 and one or dare I say 7-0 and oh across those seven games. That's the thing. I don't think that this team is incapable of being on a 17-game win streak the next time we speak to each other. This is a team that really has responded from some early-in-the-year criticism, some that was very much warranted, some that may have been blown out of proportion a little bit. But overall, they have certainly found their stride. And as we know, all it takes is one or two really strong runs. And the thing is, 
you could look at it and go, oh, well, who did they play to get on that streak? And they swept Gateway. They beat up on a Florence team that really started getting going. So those are impressive wins. You know, they, they were racking up meaningful wins on this. Now, obviously, they would have rather that been against Eastern teams. But even still, you beat up the best team in your league and win a couple games where it's not even particularly close. That speaks volumes. So the Jackals have certainly uh, shot way atop the board. They are certainly going to be in my top 10 this week in the rankings. So the New Jersey Jackals are our first hot team. On the flip side there, talking about those gateway Grizzlies, they are on that cold side. The four-game sweep at the hands of the Jackals, they have lost sole possession of first in the West. They are now tied with the Schaumburg Boomers, a team that has a Quebec team that is, as we just mentioned, kind of in uh, no man's land right now. And uh, they're looking at a big series coming up, so perhaps maybe some managing goes on where you reserve your arm talent, you reserve some of the starters for games that matter a little bit more to you because it's in division, although if you're in the position that Quebec is in, every game matters at the moment. But even still, uh, it wouldn't shock me to see Schaumburg stand atop the pile in the West come Monday morning. However, looking at everything else, and getting back to Gateway in particular, 67 runs allowed in the last two series. That is a lot of runs, especially in a minus 24 run differential. And realistically, when you start looking back through, their winning run was against Empire State, last place team, Windy City, another last place team, Joliet, a uh, second from the bottom team in the West, and then Lake Erie, a team that's been very much up and down, hard to really make heads or tails of since... June started really the last week of May. They have not really had any sort of consistency. So it'll be interesting to see if they can ever get back. But more to the case of Gateway. They've scored wins against some unimpressive teams. They lost Sam Gardner a couple weeks back to getting picked up by the Brewers. So all in all, uh, Gateway needs to start to figure it out. They need to start to come together here. Obviously, still 19-10 as of the time that we're recording this. So they're still in a fine spot. There's still nine games above 500, but things move quick in this league. And next week, you could very well be 23 and 21. You know, things could get bad. Obviously, not 23 and 21. They're not going to lose 11 games when they only play six. But you get my point. We could be talking at the time of the All-Star break, and it'd be a two within two games of 500 type situation. And then things start to get really sketchy. So in the case of Gateway, they are certainly in that cold category. Going to be interesting to see where things shake out for them keeping things going we have three hot teams in a row that we have to talk about here and the first and only team in this section in the atlantic league is the york revolution they are on a four game winning streak coming off of a three game sweep of their rivals the lancaster barnstormers seven and three in their last ten wins over long island frederick Stan island and obviously lancaster they start a weekend series against the Long Island Ducks this week. They have some easier games coming up on the slate too, but overall they've been hot. They've gotten the job done. This is a team that I ranked. Ryan didn't. There's a reason they I put them in there. They've done a lot to really jump into that spot. You could argue it's a little bit of a mirage. From a pitching perspective, it's really been Nick Riquette, and even him, he's kind of come down to earth a little bit. Uh, so overall, the team is getting the job done as a whole, but individual performances are suspect. Nelly Rodriguez is doing this thing, though, and that's helping to power this York team. I put him in that hot category. 
four-game winning streak definitely helps with that. And I think that this could definitely stretch to six, maybe even seven, but certainly a solid past two weeks for the Revs. Uh, moving over to the American Association, though, we have two hot teams, the first of which is the Milwaukee Milkman, Anthony Barone, and his boys are 8-2 in their last 10, scoring two wins against King County, scoring a sweep of the Sioux City Explorers, and two of three so far against Cleveland. They're down there for six, so they start the second half of that series tonight on Friday. They have scored 52 runs during those last nine games, so a solid run for them, especially from a team that is a solid pitching team as they are, plus 29 run differential. However, the one thing that is of note here, eight of their last 10 games, so eight, that eight and two stretch here, eight of those games have been decided by three runs or less. So things are close, but they are winning close games. So the question always becomes in these types of setups, in these types of games, are you a good team because you're pulling them out when it's close? Or are you a less than good team because you're allowing them to be that close? There's something to be said about being clutch, but when you always have to be clutch, maybe you're putting yourself in that position, right? So looking at it from that lens, they're still a hot team. They've still won eight games out of their last ten. They are still beating up on the team that is in second place in their division in Cleburne. And overall, they are a first place team. They look to be one of the better teams in their division. So we're going to give them that. However, I'm going to keep an eye on them. If they're going to keep winning these games by three runs or fewer, perhaps we have to start to look at it through a more critical lens. But as far as right now goes, Milwaukee is certainly a, uh, a hot team. Now, they are not the hottest team in their league, however. That title is certainly belonging to the Kansas City Monarchs. Winners of seven in a row, nine and one their last ten. Since an abysmal start, they've just gotten incredibly hot. Uh, they have one loss since Memorial Day, and they have swept the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks in their middle-of-the-week series. Uh, the second-best team in the league just got dismantled, quite frankly, and the Monarchs essentially said, we're back, we're here. That start was not us. It was just us finding our ground. And keep to remember they currently are missing guys because of the Pan Am games. They're going to get guys like Jake Robson back. And when he gets back, this team is just going to get even better. So overall, you can't really look at this team and find too many weaknesses. This is the Monarchs team we've come to expect under Mark Brandmeier. And uh, overall, this is just a, an elite level team that I feel foolish for doubting. But they are probably the second highest team in indie ball behind only the Jackals. And even at that point, they are probably the best team in independent ball at the moment. They will certainly be getting my number one overall spot in the rankings this week. So uh, the Kansas City Monarchs, they are tearing through everybody, and they have uh, more victims on the slate coming up. Certainly with the next team we're going to discuss and the final cold team that we're going to discuss uh, coming to town uh, this weekend, which is the Chicago Dogs. They are not a very good team right now, uh, to be blunt. One and nine in their last ten, only have two wins in the month of June. That one win came a couple days ago, and it came in extra innings against the King County Cougars. Uh, they were very close to getting swept four series in a row. Uh, the three series they were swept in a row, though, came from Milwaukee. Not, not a bad sweep, you know, very solid team there. Winnipeg, a team that is not doing particularly well 
and then Fargo Moorhead, which is a again a solid team, a, a good team. So I can't really knock that there. Uh, overall, though, uh, 98 runs against in this month, so that's not good there. And a minus 35 run differential. Those numbers may be slightly off. I believe I may have added the wrong number in there. However, it's still over 90 for the run against and the run differential will be closer to around 28 but even still the point remains this has not been a very good uh, run for the Chicago Dogs eight non-save losses in June so in other words eight losses by four runs or more keeping in mind it is the 16th of June as we record here and they don't play on Mondays so you can kind of do the math there to kind of figure out how bad things have gotten in Chicago here and certainly a far cry from the start of the year they had with uh, Josh Altman and Tyler Palm really doing a lot of heavy lifting, doing a lot of work. Altman's kind of fallen off as of recent, batting under 100 in the last seven. Uh, Luke Manjari has done some work. He's had about two or three home runs, so he's producing some offense. But generally speaking, as far as batting average goes, getting on base, three guys, four guys are really doing most of the heavy lifting in that regard. Uh, this is a team that is a little bit of a free fall right now, to be blunt. They have an important series against Kane County coming up. I'm just skipping over the Kansas City series for the reasons we just spent a couple minutes discussing. In that, I, I just don't see the Dogs taking more than one game from that series, if even that. Uh, so certainly, you got to regroup, focus on Kane County. A uh, team you took one game from, you lost another close game too. If you can manage to get two or three from there, maybe you could start to turn something around because in streaks and slumps like this, you just need to win a one in a row, two in a row, three in a row. If you can just put together a couple of wins, win three of five, just to prove the room that we still can do it, that's really what's important. Because eh? at a certain point, the slump becomes a mental thing as much as a physical play thing. So hopefully they're able to turn it around. And with the, and at the conclusion of Chicago Dog Talk now, we are going to move on to our next segment, the Crystal Ball. So what's the crystal ball? The crystal ball is a fancy way of saying I'm going to make some predictions and some hot takes that are going to come back to bite me in the ass next week. But it's going to be fun because I want to hear your crystal ball moments as well. So uh, here's what I have. I got three of them. So uh, the first one probably is the least dare, the least uh, least hot take. You're going to get hotter with each one. You got to start mild and then you got to go to medium and then you go to a little bit of a hot one, a little bit of a kick at the end. Uh, so the first one, the New Jersey Jackals end the week in first place. I got reasons for this, of course. You know, they have two more games against Windy City. They're an 11-19 and team as they play tonight. And quite frankly, it was 8-2 to at last I seen that game. Or 8-1. to It was not close is what it was. Uh, so I kind of expect Windy City to be 11-20. and And the Jackals on an 11-game winning streak here. So uh, with two more against them. Four against Empire State, and the only team that's in front of them being the Miners by a game, having Three Rivers and Evansville. I have this sense that the Jackals are going to be a first place team by week's end, because even if the Miners win, go five and one, the Jackals are winning four against Empire State, and they are almost certainly winning two against Windy City. That's at least a half game they're making up there alone. And that's at the very best case scenario for the Miners. There's just not really a world in which the Jackals are getting blown out by either one of those two teams, as sad as it is to say. So, I can very well see a world where New Jersey's in first place. Grant you, not by a lot. Probably be by half game to a game. But even still, 
the Jackals are certainly in position to take control of their division, something that a week or two ago would have seemed like a foreign concept, but they have battled back, and you got to give them that. Uh, our next prediction, the ball says, Jason Newman-Todd, a.k.a. Jason Newman, a.k.a. Mount Notani, will lead the Pioneer League in home runs at week's end. Why do I say this? Because he's already second in the league with seven home runs. Eight takes the lead at the moment. He's hit five of those seven in the last seven games. And he's eight for his last 19. So I certainly think there's a lot to be said here. The guy's batting basically 400 and 450. So who is to say he doesn't have a little bit more power in him to just launch a couple of home runs? Three or four should get the job done by a clear margin. I think he could definitely hit three in his next what, six games before we record again? So, hey, Jason Newman, I expect him to be atop the home run board in the Pioneer League. And our last crystal ball of the week, it says the Long Island Ducks will be a sub-500 team by week's end. This is just to say that at some point in the week, this team will fall under 500. Now, this is a bit of a leap. They have Staten Island, and they have Lancaster on the schedule. They also play York. York it will be a tougher series. They've proven that. York battles them tight. Staten Island also plays them tight, but normally it does not go the Fairyhawks way. And, well, Lancaster, they were doing well before they ran into York, and York was a buzzsaw, I believe. The Barnstormers won six in a row, and they had some good metrics going their way as well. So maybe it's some, some competition there. They're nine very tough games. And I could see that being, you know, three games under 500. If you lose three to York and then play 500 ball against the other two, which I don't think is necessarily out of the realm of possibility, they would be at 500. I think it's a little bit of a stretch, admit you, but I could see it being something that is certainly plausible if things go wrong. Because keep in mind, they just lost a Danny Hedgeveria and Daniel Murphy, two of their better hitters, replaced by Ruben Tejada, who hasn't played in a minute. Their pitching is still suspect. And overall, it's not the same Long Island team we thought we were getting. They're pretty much a 500 club. They've been sub-500 before this year. They're still figuring it out. And right as they start to get something going, then they lose two big pieces. So a sub-500 Long Island team I don't think is the most outrageous thing, but certainly the longest of the odds that we see in the crystal ball this week. And on that note, we go now to the final segment of this week. And that is, of course, the props and the pickums. The segment, as you can probably guess, is a bunch of prop bets, basically. Only we're not wagering anything. We're just putting them out there. So we want to hear on Twitter, tweet at IndieBallPod, your predictions for this week, any crystal ball ones, but also what you make of these prop wagers here. This is where we need to get a FanDuel sponsorship in here, certainly, because they would be, this is right out their alley. But we have two sets here. Two particular props that we're going to pick from, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to take. It's a simple over-under. Make it nice and simple, very nice and easy. You tell me, will it be over the number or under the number we put out here? So for the first one, we're going to go with York. The York Revolution score, 35 and a half runs. Will they be over or under that number? I have a feeling, and keeping in mind that they've averaged about six and a quarter runs per game thus far. I'm thinking they're going to be over that number. I think that they, judging off their schedule, judging off of how things have been, I think they are able to get to that six-run average per game this week. And 
I always going to side on more of an offensive heavy line of thinking there. So I'm going to go with, and the week, of course, being, we'll go Friday to Thursday from the games on the 16th to the games on the 22nd, because we're going to be doing notes on either 22 or 23. So that's why we're going to go with those days. So 16, 22 for all of these. Give me, I'll take the over on the York runs. And the second point is going to be Tri-City Valley Catch strikeouts. They are averaging just about 8.13 strikeouts per game. We're going to put their strikeouts on the week at 50 and a half. It's a lot of strikeouts, admittedly. And admittedly, it would be fairly easy to take the under. And this isn't among just stars, it's among the whole team. Keeping in mind, they have Quebec. They have, oh, I don't recall who they have at the end of the week, but they do start off the week with Florence. I'm going to take the over on it as well. I'm going to take the over on both of them here. Perhaps it's a dumb decision to do, but there's something I, I just get a feel in here. I think that this is a team that could get some strikeouts. I look at the starting pitching too. I think the Wayne Marshall's good for some strikeouts. I don't know what I feel about BB and Vasquez, but I feel like Marshall can definitely put up about a fifth of those. And if the bullpen can come up with another, say, two fifths, we're at three fifths there. We just need another 20 across the board, or 21, I guess. So, I'm going to take the over. I don't think it'll be my match. I think it'll be 51, 52. But give me the over on both of them to keep things interesting. And that ends our prop and our pick section of the week. And with it, it ends the first kind of test run of the experimental uh, new format of this show. Uh, obviously, we'll throw an interview in there. I'm not sure where it would be tossed in, but probably uh, somewhere around the series preview, either before or after. Uh, is where we throw an interview in, and that would be filling in some time as well. And it seems like the timing on it ran out fairly well, fairly decent. And I hope you guys enjoyed this new format. Obviously, we're going to be working out the kinks. We're going to be ironing things out. We're going to get people on. All is going to be well and good on this show. But as we go through this transition period, I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I appreciate you guys, you know, staying with the show and keeping up to date on everything. And so... We'll wrap everything up. We'll go to the plugs. We'll get out of here. A little bit of a shorter show, but I don't think people mind a shorter show when it's just me here. So we'll wrap up this 10th and hopefully final solo jam with some standard plugs. If you want to find links to anything we mentioned on the show this week, you can find them on the website, IndieBallReport.com. If you want to participate in the pick em, the crystal balls, or just yell at me for calling your team cold or hot or not picking your team series this week for the preview or for anything, really. You could do so on social media at IndieBallPod or on Instagram at IndieBallReport. So be sure to check us out there. And if you are just finding this link as someone sent it to you or you click the link in the bio or the link that got tweeted out or something like that and you're not subscribed to the show, you should subscribe to the show. And you can do so wherever you find podcasts, tune in, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, any major podcatcher, we are on there. So be sure to check us out there, rate and review, and subscribe if you have not done so already. And with that said, we conclude this 223rd edition of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. That's the way we've concluded 
223 other editions of this show, and much more than that because we bonus episodes too. And that's by saying, don't forget to play.